Hello, and welcome to the Morbid Museum. We are your hosts, Katie Mead and Luke Boyd. Welcome, everyone. So glad to be with you once again. We hope you enjoyed our special guest. We had such a great time recording with Brian Otanio. And I mean, the feedback has just been phenomenal. So thank you so much. We'll definitely make sure this is something we do again. It was a great episode and uh, Brian was fantastic. And uh, it's been really great to see the positive response uh, to this little podcast we started just a few months ago. Um, totally. So hoping to get more special guests and special subjects under our belt as we go. Absolutely. But getting back onto our regularly scheduled program, it is your turn this week, Luke. Yes, thank you, Katie. Thank you for joining us, folks. Today's subject in the Morbid Museum is Victorian mourning, specifically the hair of the dead and its many uses in Victorian mourning practice. So we've we've hit on this subject before in terms of we we were presaging it a little bit in our introduction a few we weeks did ago. that's right and i saw i thought to myself i should tackle this subject as promised and for me i tend to focus a little more on stories and places and i wanted to get something more object related and so i'm pivoting my focus to something more material which i'm mm -hmm. excited about and what a material <laughs> what a material what a gross material uh it was rather icky thinking about this um mm -hmm. And of course, the day as we record, it has been just hours since the death of Queen Elizabeth, the longest Wild. the longest reigning monarch in British history, has passed away at the age of 96. And so we're going to be talking about Victorian mourning. So her great-great-granny, Queen Victoria, who reigned from 1837 to 1901, one of the other longer reigns of British society. And so the loss of Queen Elizabeth being felt acutely across the world, across the Commonwealth, and across the United Kingdom. Um, but mourning practice of Queen Victoria will be the focus of today's subject. So what an eerie parallel that we scheduled this. So weird. Yeah, it is really. kind of creepy. And so I, I, there's a couple of sort of callbacks that I'm already thinking of, you know, in this in terms of, in terms of the departed Queenie, uh, as mm -hmm. we discuss. Yeah. So we talk a lot about the Victorian age in this podcast almost comically oh, do we? so we do it every week and we marvel at it every week the victorian age refers to the reign of queen victoria which as i stated was roughly 1837 to 1901 so the period of the mid to late 19th century and when we talk about the victorian people the victorians we're talking about the population alive during her reign and usually on both sides of the atlantic so we'd be talking about people in victorian england or victorian america or australia canada you know the anglosphere but also europe and um, and of course, places that were part of her empire at the time. Uh, mm -hmm. all, all, you know, she was a world leader, even though she was a bit of a world weary leader uh, during her mourning stages, which we can talk about in the course of this discussion. The Victorian mourning rituals and customs were very dramatic and very interesting. And they seem so, so foreign to us today. Um, they were animated by grand gestures of grief. If you recall, folks, during the Lincoln's Body episode, that was a perfect example of Victorian mourning. Grand pageantry, mm -hmm. this funeral train, and this huge procession, and all of this, you know, a ringing of hands, and this dramatic outpouring of emotion. Very during emotional. A, a very repressed time at the same time. Talking about mm -hmm. repressed sexually, perhaps, but also people were very emotive in terms of grief. It's really interesting to us today, more than 100 years later, our relationship with death has changed almost 100%. It is crazy. You know, I, I, I never really thought of it in that way, but there were so many restrictions mm. and rules about your behavior. Like now it's such a common thing for us to say, like, you don't get to choose how people mourn, right? Right. People are going to go to the movies or do what they need to do. Whereas then it's like, if you don't mourn the way we're telling you how to mourn, like in society, like there's something very wrong with you and people are going to say something about it. Sure. Yeah. It was, it was something about conformity, something about societal expectation. Mm -hmm. And like many things in this time period, it was all about status. If you had a status that allowed you to go into mourning or to extend your period of mourning, cause you didn't have to work. These were all things that were oh, yeah. related. And so of course, some 
someone like the queen at the time, Queen Victoria, you know, was the most privileged person. And could, <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> could engage could engage in mourning very dramatically and very generously. Oh, and so, did she ever? And she did. We've talked about this several times in regards to the London Stinks series and several other chapters in this podcast. The idea that the culture was just steeped in mortality. Mm -hmm. We're trying to get to the why always. Why in the world were these people, all those wacky Victorians, why <laughs> were they so obsessed with death? So you know, obsessed, yeah. Advances in medicine were coming around in terms of contagion and germs and sanitation, but it was still very elusive and child mortality was rampant and death in childbirth was terrible was equal to that end and if you, yeah. you know, think of any dickensian novel there's so many sad tragic moments of childbirth yeah. uh death disease and contagion you know diet and healthy habits were not understood as they are today at all no and people lived in polluted and overcrowded environments where they had the broad street pump and yeah things being cough, cough, cholera <laughs> yes exactly horrible <laughs> specters of death and, and contagion mm. and cityscapes and factories belched toxins into water and air supplies and poor sanitation just plagued the population. So take your pick, folks. There's a buffet of reasons yeah. as to why death was all around. And so <laughs> death was something to be feared. And I think it was also something to be respected because people dealt with it a lot. And they didn't mm -hmm. just deal with it and move on. They dealt with it in a very systematic, very over-the-top way. And death could strike at any time. And it did. Death is inevitable. Mm -hmm. So no, we've really, thinking about it, like we've really set the audience up nicely for this episode because of our mm -hmm. episodes on the disgustingness of Victorian England and our relationship with death uh, through the ages. So exactly. Job, <laughs> we're, well, ready to, yeah, we're ready here. <laughs> we're so good. We're so contextualized. Anybody just joining us for the first time, welcome, welcome, welcome. So you're going to need to go back. <laughs> you are. You need to go back to June. So, and we think about medical treatment, right? We think about who was administering medical service. So a doctor, oh, yes. a, tra a traveling aide, it would have been administered at home. Yes. And it was often seen, it would be seen as undignified to die in a place like a hospital or That's a right. ward. And so people often, they would That's reach the a- poor. They'd reach a plat, yeah. They'd reach a plateau of their of their care, and then the doctor would say, "Well, this person has a week, maybe a couple of days left. Let's take them home. Let's allow them to rest and relax, and hopefully cross to the next stage of of life at home, surrounded by friends and family and and relatives." Yeah, who, essentially their version of hospice. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So hospice was at home and. You know, people would sit waiting in vigil until a loved one had expired. And when a loved one had finally succumbed, the the mourning practice would begin. And there were a lot of superstitions that were wrapped up in this secular Western practice of mourning. Mirrors would be covered with a black veil. Mm -hmm. Photos would be covered or turned around. This idea that the, the photographs, early photographs, even could have been a portal or a window into the afterlife. The dead dwelled in the home for a number of days for callers and for waking. And people could be at home for as much as six days. The deceased in the home for six days in the parlor. That's actually what I was going to ask you. I couldn't remember how long it would go on for. And so thinking about in the earlier half of the Victorian period, we don't have embalming or anything. Right. So it's That's just a, a privilege. Yeah. A gross dead body sitting it's in a, a house for a week. It's a gross dead body. And right, think about we're filming right now, we're recording right now in September. Imagine how hot, you know, it could be in some of those oh, yeah. weeks of the year. And so there's a lot of flowers, a lot of, you know, flowers <laughs> yeah. to compensate. And the wakes could last three or four days or up to six days. And what I thought was really interesting as well, which I hadn't often heard, is that the clocks in the home were sometimes stopped at the hour really? and at the hour and minute of the when the loved one had died. Man, so it's like that last, all in. They did. They're like fetishizing that last moment. moment. Yeah, it's macabre. It's yeah. morbid. It's just and ooh. then like shut it all down. There's no more mirrors. There's no more photos. There's like there's just shut it down. <laughs> That's yeah. the whole vibe. It's crazy. So who? Who was the arbiter of mourning culture in Victorian society? So it's interesting that, you know, where do these rules come from? 
Um, so right. there were a number of journals and magazines, such as Castle's Magazine in the United Kingdom, Godey's Ladies Book, and others. And what's interesting is that all of these things are geared towards women. I was just going to say, this is very Emily Post of death. <laughs> this is yeah. what it's giving me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Emily Dickinson, you name it. I mean, it's, sure, it's, yeah. it's, you know, so women had this unique role of being the mourners of society. Mm-hmm. So you also had people in literature who would have codified the sort of state of mourning and the practices of mourning as reflected at the time. But there were a lot of so sort of it's sort of society folk, you know, who created a material representation of death. You, know, you buy this certain veil, you you stop your clock, you do all these things to the objects in your home, or you turn these things in a certain direction mm-hmm. to connote sort of the direction that your house is in at the current moment. So you think about, you know, this is a world of like Harriet Beecher Stowe's domestic science where women are trying to create a, sure. a an ethic and a science and an art to domestic drudgery. Mm-hmm. And even in mourning, there is a scientific precision to that practice, which is just fascinating. So it's a it's a women's cultural movement. Aren't we always the trendsetters at the end of the day? <laughs> aren't, aren't we always the one who are deciding like wear this, wear that, like whatever. That's right. You know? That's right. We really That's do right. kind of call a lot of the, specifically those amongst us who have a lot of money. Yes. To call a lot of shots. That's right. You're absolutely right. So this is like yeah. Anna. This is like Anna Wintour. Absolutely. You know, That's holding, exactly what I was thinking of. Yeah, holding like a death runway. This is <laughs> this is the crinoline of the age. This is the black crepe. That veil um, is so last season. <laughs> you may think that veil is is pointless and stupid, but that is that was chosen for you by this industry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Meryl Streep in a Victorian outfit. Yeah, I'm here for that. I'm here for that. So you're right, Katie, that this was so connected to status. So a lot of folk, whether they be of the middling or lower classes or, you know, different societal groups, they couldn't necessarily afford to go into these various stages of mourning and put everything on hold. They had they had work to do. They had kids to raise. They had a life to connect to. So the grief was an ideal that not everybody could necessarily. And so we're going to get to the subject of the of the of the of the podcast here, the idea that there are several stages of mourning, full mourning, second or lighter mourning, and then final mourning. And this whole practice could take more than a year. Full mourning, the first stage of mourning, was a year to 18 months. Just the first stage of mourning. And that so would you, so you haven't even done anything yet. You no, just, you're, you're just, just yeah, you're just you're dead wearing old. black. Correct. Yeah. You're wearing you're widow's weeds. Parties. Correct. You're yeah. su- you're shut off. You can't go into yeah, the world. You're shut in. Right. You're shut in. You can't leave your house. You're wearing black from head to toe, crepe and velvet, a large veil that can go on for a year if you're so inclined and if you're so privileged. Sure. Second morning comes around after a year has passed after your loved one has died. Now, young lady, you can wear grays. Maybe you can wear violet or, or or a mauve or a white or oh, shinier mean, fabrics. Yeah, you just literally named my wardrobe. So <laughs> it is actually very very <laughs> chic. Um, and this is the fun part: is that now in second morning you could wear your morning jewelry. Yeah. Yeah. So what's 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 morning jewelry? Do you ask? What exactly is that? Well, so we're talking about relics. We're talking Mm -hmm. about something from someone, a body that is turned into an object. You and I were both were both raised Catholic. So we know a lot about relic culture in terms of an altar. A lot of times Mm -hmm. the relic of a saint, whether it be a fragment of skin or hair or a tooth or anything, would be given to a church to consecrate the tabernacle sealed inside the altar. That's a very Christian thing. Whereas this is now more becoming a secular thing in the 19th century is that we're now taking relics from our loved ones, our own saints in our own lives, and sort of enshrining them in the fabric of our lives. So we're keeping them alive, even though they're going to be in a vault or they're going to be buried or their body is going, is going to be lost to us. We're going to have a piece of to carry with us. This mm-hmm. just, it just seems so unbelievably morbid. This is burial practice, right? We're not doing any kind of cremation. So it's like your loved one is buried in the ground. So you want to take something with them versus yes. with cremation. For some people, that gives them comfort that they do kind of have that that relic of their loved one being their entire person right right 
vase or something like that's that. That's a great point. And, you know, but the cremains are sort of more abstract yes, than, very. than something from someone's physical personage. Which so, you, such as, go for it. Yeah, <laughs> you us. got it. No, you got it. So these things are, these things are memento mori, yes. you know, reminding us yes. that you will die. Um, so the body becomes an object. So there's all kinds of different ones. There's hair bracelets that were made. <laughs> yeah. And I sent you some images. I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> so the hair bracelets, the those I don't think have survived very well. There's some lithographs and prints yeah, of them. Did they? The braiding. I mean, come on. So uh that's a big one. And <laughs> that so, might be the one that grosses me out the most. The hair bracelet is disgusting because there's nothing between you and the hair. Yeah, that's what you're, it is. I think. You're just wearing the hair. Around yeah. your sweaty hair. Just, I can't. So the hair bracelet was a popular one. And another one was a hair ring. I like the ring. Actually. Isn't it gorgeous? I kind of love it. Yeah, so I would this, definitely do that. There's a picture of a ring I have showed to Katie in this audio me medium. And it's like a little ring studded with these little pearls, little stones. And then there's a glass window. And inside the ring is this blondish or whitish hair. And it's woven almost in this like Celtic braided. Yeah, it's like plated. Yeah. yeah. It's beautiful. It is stunning. And, you know, to think about the level of expertise that would go into making these kinds oh, of yeah. things is pretty incredible. Another one is the hair album. It's <laughs> <laughs> aggressive. <laughs> Which is exactly what it sounds like. It's it's a little more one of the more lazy ones. It's hair that's like stapled or taped into a book. Brooches were another one. So you think of the same concept of a ring. There's a yeah. there's a glass window. It's sealed, and it, maybe there's an inscription behind it or something. Um, and a lot of times the hair would be arranged really beautifully. It sometimes, is pretty. Sometimes it would just be kind of coiled up and left a there. Lock. Yeah. And it depends on the nature of the hair that you got. You know, if you got hair from a brush, that right. shit's going to be kinky and just like all kind of weird. Whereas yeah. if you if you cut the hair from the loved one's head, it would you could fashion it and you could move it and you could make it into different kinds of things. Um, My question on this particular one that I'm looking at is it's three different colored hairs. Oh, my gosh. You so are going what's to, the story? You are going to absolutely flip. So this was something I had no idea um, is that often these hair artworks had multiple people's hair in them. Yeah, I mean, I I figured that's what was up. It's not, is it, mm, it's yeah, just so, weird. So it's who's just, in there? So, well, that's a great question. So there's other, as a few other types of hair art. Um, another one is a locket, of course, which we'll talk about with Queen Victoria. Mm -hmm. And then there's the watch fob made of hair. Sure. Apparently, apparently Napoleon had a watch fob made of Josephine's hair. That's right, he did. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and the watch fob, of course, is like the chain for the for the pocket watch or the little dangly that comes off it. So there's all mm -hmm. these objects. But the one that I think is really the most interesting and the most artistic is the hair wreath. And that's the image that you're looking at of those beautiful design, that really dense net rosettes and flowers. It's incredible. It's, it's like it's crazy. It's, you wouldn't think that it's hair when you're no. first looking at it. When you're first looking at it, it looks like a really, really dried like flower or like a branch that you like pulled out of something. Yes, it, and it's like, it totally does. And it's like, oh, that's arranged really nicely and sweetly. And often these things are found in a shadow box. So the first time I ever saw a hair wreath was when I was working at the Mark Twain House and Museum in Hartford, Connecticut. And that house was steeped in death because several of Mark Twain's daughters predeceased him. His daughter, yeah. his, his wife died before him. And there was a hair wreath in one of the bedrooms. And it was one of the more provocative objects in the house because in a historic house, what's interesting is that we often don't see the people, right? They're dead. They're long gone. Right. This is one of the few examples, you know, in which that person whose house you're exploring, now their physical body is sort of sharing space with you. And so even though that hair wreath was not from the Clemenses, Mark Twain's family. So the hair wreath is a fascinating object. Yeah, it's I mean, it is an art form to make one of these. It's really, it's it's honestly spectacular. It's very intricate. And there's yeah. a huge hair wreath cult today um, appreciating the fine art that is the hair wreath. So we're going to try to visually describe or verbally describe to you what we're looking at. So usually the hair would be arranged in a wreath shape. So it looks like almost a wreath that can be placed on your head yes. at, a, at a Renaissance fair or mm -hmm. at, a, at a toga party or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so the wreath, of course, is made of flowers, but the flowers are made of human hair. And oftentimes the hair wreath is in a U shape. 
And the U shape, of course, is like a horseshoe. And the idea was that good luck would be contained within the horseshoe facing upward. Just like I'm Irish American, we have a horseshoe, you know, in our in our house. It's a very common yeah, uh, I do too. visual. Yeah. And it also couldn't denote a heavenly ascent upward. So the wreath facing oh, upward is like a cool. rising, a rising heavenly uh, ascent, as it were. So there's a lot of symbolism and uh, superstition that is wrapped up uh, in that. I like that. So I, I think something that I'm curious about, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are wondering is why hair? Like why, why is it? And, and this is something that has been used consistently as something to remember people by even when it's just like you know i i sent my loved one a lock of hair mm -hmm. in a letter right mm -hmm. so what is it about hair there was something about hair that was completely fetishized by the people of the age and you know people sort of twirling one's loved one's hair running their hand through it but basically it was the, the most imperishable type of body byproduct that... <laughs> so it's just it's just a practical <laughs> it's thing. really practical and it was wow. pliable. it was pliable you could you could make mm -hmm. a lot of things out of it and you know without context like we were saying if you were to find a hair wreath in an attic in a trunk you'd be like what in the world is this you wouldn't necessarily think or know it was hair by first looking at it so it can be transformed into something that transcends its banality of just a lock of hair mm. and it could be made into something really special and really spectacular and i was actually doing some reading on conservation of hair wreaths which yeah. is interesting and by and large they're they're pretty much like a set it and forget it kind of artifact kind of a gift to that's to amazing to conservators you know and the biggest thing is like oh if it's glued the glue would decay and the glue might collect grit um but by and large the hair is just there you know yeah the hair's and not gonna go anywhere yeah it's not gonna go anywhere and what's weird also is that you know as, as far as i understand i'm not a biologist is that hair is such a is such a funny thing for us as humans is that it's already kind of dead when it's coming off your skull it is right, right. Yeah. so <laughs> it's like the deadest thing on you when you're alive <laughs> <laughs> and it just it remains forever. So there's a quote from Family Friend magazine in the United Kingdom. A lock of hair from the head of some beloved one is often prized above gold or gems, for it is not a mere purchasable gift, but actually a portion of themselves present with us when they are absent. Mm. So there's a lot of sentimentality going on. That word is used a lot when referring yeah. to the Victorians. And what I think that is to mean is that there's they're so they're so wrapped up in the thing, in in imbuing something as as common as a lock of hair with this essential truth that this is my way of communing with this loved one. Yeah. I think it definitely also speaks to certainly in the earlier half of the 19th century, the early 1800s, just everything is so thick with romanticism. Yes, too, it's you know, true. it's true. And so I think, you know, you live in a society where you're limited on what's an acceptable amount of intimacy. Yeah, right. Courtships yeah. and things like that are only allowed to be done in certain ways. So yeah, a lock of hair from someone is incredibly intimate. Yeah, it's like sexualized. Yeah, yeah. And, and a hair, especially a woman's hair, in, in like every culture, it's considered this beloved, prized, beautiful thing. It's like the source of all your beauty in certain all your cultures. Power. So, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, have you seen my hair today? It looks fucking fantastic. It looks stunning. And I was going to say before I came on the call, I'm like, I should brush my hair because my hair looks like... <laughs> My hair looks like our nasty ass wreath like droppings. <laughs> but you your hair is bouncy, it's gorgeous. And you know what's really interesting is that there was a practice called making rats, hair rats. What does that mean? R A double T. So a hair rat would literally it's like a bag of hair that you <laughs> that you would put under your hair. To make mm. your to make your real hair like I a do bump know it. that. It's a, it's a bump it. <laughs> it is a bump it. Oh my god, I forgot that that's what that was called. Yeah, it's such an old school like term, and uh -huh. uh, so you could make rats for your hair, which is disgusting sounding. And so this begs a question of how did they do this? Yeah, how do you like, do this? How did they transform hair in this way? Because we're looking at it and I'm getting arthritis, like thinking about the intricacy. This is micro stuff, folks. These That's what I'm saying. Are Everybody real quick, just take like a single strand of your hair and think about how someone's going to turn that into 
like a art, flower, essentially. A yeah, flower. that's insanity. And what's really interesting is that there was a whole, this was so popular, and there yeah. was a whole industry that grew out of this. There were hair artisans, hair designers, hair workers. And this is all part of a movement known as hair work or hair art. So people were being paid top dollar to do this. So people could, you could wow. send, you could send your loved one's hair out circa Victorian Amazon. You could send it to a hair worker and they Oh, could this is Etsy. Don't, how dare you? <laughs> this is Etsy. <laughs> It'll take six months to get back in Victorian yeah, times. But it's going to look great. But you know what? You're going to still be in mourning. So it's fine. So it's, <laughs> you're, you're, you're in mourning for two and a half years. So it's, just tell us when your first mourning period ends and when you want to expect the hair art back. Yeah. Thank you, Esther. Um, so, <laughs> so people had professionals who could do this and you could send your hair work out. And in fact, Sears and Roebuck was on this, like the catalogs, the early, the early catalogs were on this. That's so, so cool. It's fascinating. And they like, they have these ads where it says like, we promise you, you're going to get your loved one's hair back. Like okay, it's not, so it's that not, was... it's not. <laughs> That was a question. <laughs> the hair fraud was like, you know, that shit was going off big time. Like, it's like, know, this is a situation where you want to spend a good amount of money for this because otherwise. Yeah, we need to get this hair wreath DNA tested because there's no possible <laughs> way this came from grandpa. Like, no. <laughs> he was bald. <laughs> the invisible hair wreath. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So. So what's really interesting is that, um, you know, the hair would be cut from someone's scalp. And what you're seeing behind these hair wreaths is a really amazing frame. So you've got this wire frame. And if you look closely on some of these hair wreaths, you can see like these little loops and like nodes where maybe the hair has popped yeah, out or yeah. the hair is not long enough. And so yeah. basically you're using like a small tool, like a tweezer or a plier, and you're weaving the hair through. It still is incredibly difficult. It is not like paint by numbers. It looks no. ridiculously hard. Very it sounds fine. like needlework though. Like it uh, is. needle needlepoint rather. It is a lot like needlepoint, a lot of like weaving, like knitting, crochet. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, and this is women's work, fancy work, you know. And so women would have been doing these kinds of domestic arts already. And sure. so this would be an extension of that. So people could do it in the home. And that was sort of a, an extension also of how much time you had, which was a, a indication of status. And so oftentimes you would use these little wires and they would guide these hair through these loops. So to pretty much follow the form of the flower. Because it would be very difficult for one to sculpt something three-dimensionally without a real genius or a guy yeah. to help you. Um, so the wire was the key for many of these elaborate wreaths. And a lot of times the wire is what you're seeing if the hair is breaking apart or if it's yeah. degrading, degrading over time. Because Yeah, it, looking it, it, at it now, I can definitely see. You can see the wires. Yeah. I can see some wire. Oh, I can see the wires. I can see the wires. Destroys <laughs> the illusion every it time. It took, took me right out of it. <laughs> what I thought was interesting is that there were a lot of different tools. And you can see there's a slide that I showed you that was like a catalog of the different tools. Guys, I wish you were here for this this slide PowerPoint deck. presentation that I'm giving myself. Yes. Luke. <laughs> yeah. So this this um this M. Campbell is oh, the ad. Well. And it's it's the art of hair work for all kinds of hair work, tools and materials. And obviously, guys, we'll be posting all of this on yeah. the, the IG so you can see everything we're talking this about. This is very visual. Yeah. So there's yeah. crimping irons, weaving cards, hackles. So a lot of the same things you do in fiber arts when you're making wool, yeah. or spinning wool. It's a lot of the same kinds of things. People did use curling irons to actually get the hair to form the of way they wanted. Of course you would. Yeah. Yeah. So you're really treating the hair, you're conditioning it, you're trying to mold it the best you can. And what often would happen is that the hair would be formed in the way you want, and then it could be glued into a brooch and then or glued into a shadow box. More often than not, it's a three-dimensional thing, which is also very cool in terms mm -hmm. of the Victorian age, something that's like, you know, frozen in time. Yeah. Could blow in the wind and now it's frozen in this box. It's sealed. Right. It's stuck. And also some of them could be under a freestanding dome. So there's one that I shared with you that's a tree, a hair tree. I saw tree. it. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's so beautiful. It really um, is. It, it bothers me how attractive I find these. <laughs> oh, it's, it's weird. Yeah, it's very, very, very <laughs> like, scary. I'm like, I kind of want these. <laughs> 
so uh, the dome is really cool, the tree, because that's stunning. like a three-dimensional standing tree. And then the really pretty one is the one that's the feathers. So it's like the three feathers. It look like feather quills before that uh, slide about the Campbell. Yeah. Um, also, for everyone, um, if, you're, if you're not looking at it just yet, maybe you're driving in your car. And please don't look at the photos if you're driving in your car. But when you do, I just want to point out also something that makes this so incredible to me visually is that you know hair particularly in this time period it only comes in so many colors right mm. so it all has this very like autumnal tone so it looks like death it looks like dying leaves dying trees like it's, it's yes it's so beautiful in that way too it's it's these natural earthy colors just make it you just brought up something that was so powerful. So <laughs> what I found is that a lot of these, there will be other brooches that would be made. You know a lot from Greenwood Cemetery, rural parklands, Yes, that the weeping willow, the urn, a lot of these symbols seen on graves and graven images. So mm -hmm. a lot of times there'd be a brooch painted for someone. Maybe yes. it would depict a gravestone, a gravestone or just mm -hmm. an urn. And often the sepia-colored paint that was used to color the brooch was actually made from hair. Oh, <gasps> stop it. Really? So you're exactly right in terms of this. I don't, I, don't, I don't have a visual for that, but oh, um, maybe that, you can find one. Yes. But if you're looking at some of these colors, right, you can sort of blend them in your mind and you get this sort of sepia tone, which is also very interesting because we think of sepia as like a filter meaning old. Right. <laughs> in terms of like our Instagram culture. So right, there's yeah. a lot of color theory going on here, which is just really interesting. So that we did talk about the wire method that was really yeah. popular in the UK, but the mm -hmm. French had their own spin on things. Oh, because the French. Oh, the French. So they're known for their hair <laughs> and wine <laughs> so <laughs> orson welles coming soon so uh, paul maison there yeah of course <laughs> paul maison said it best himself this hair wreath <laughs> we sell no hair wreath before you're dead uh, so <laughs> amazing okay so the french had a really cool system and they called it the french palette or the hair feather and mm. the, the French were rogues because they didn't use wires. <laughs> no wires. No wires. No wire hanger for the hair. Our French numbers went down. So um, <laughs> they've, babe, they've, 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 <laughs> they've, yeah, they've tanked. They've, they've plummeted. They've cratered. Uh, so <laughs> you can see in some of these depictions, there are these really interesting feathered, you know, looking uh, hair wreaths. Love this. Isn't this stunning? Fucking French, man. They nail it every time. And it's it's still holding up. Like, that thing's been vertical probably on a wall for at least a century. And then it's probably been in a box, you know, sealed somewhere in a museum. And the hair is still there. And it's still formed beautifully. Even um, more so with this than with the wreath. This does not look like hair. Correct. Correct. It's incredible. Yeah. It is. Yeah. So it, in, in some cases, it, it comes to an end, like a feather, and then mm -hmm. it fans out in this very intense shape. But you can see all the lines of the fibers of the hair. Again, it looks like a feather, not necessarily human hair. Stunning. So out of, out of context, it's just a pretty, a pretty picture. And remember also, this is the age of taxidermy. So seeing this next to like a stuffed, you know, peacock, you know, wouldn't be, wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility. Um, and it would be in sure. context of that, like, you know, hunting sort of, you know, conquest of, of the dead of animals. Hopefully you didn't hunt for the human hair. <laughs> yes. The grave robber who just wants your hair. It's a real waste of time. Um, just take the hair and leave. Damn it. Leave me be. So much labor. <laughs> so you raised a great question before you raised a great question before oh thank uh, you yes about uh different colors yeah so and i've seen different colors in hair wreaths before and i of, i often thought oh maybe one just got sun dyed or there's different parts of your head like you know i have little touches of red in my mustache or my sure. hair yeah, you yeah, know, yeah things like that blonde or whatever strawberry right. blonde and um but often locks of hair would be twisted together with other loved ones. Oh, I love that. Living or dead as a way to bind them together emotionally oh. or spiritually. Oh. So it's so tender and so beautiful. And often a family tree would be expressed in a hair wreath. 
Oh, that's so beautiful. So Ugh. if you look if you look at some of the other images, there's one I there's one later on that is a beautiful hair wreath in the middle and it's in one shadow box. And then there's like 12 or 16 small portraits going around the frame. I did see that one. That one's and really beautiful. Sometimes there's a picture in the middle, right? If there's three people in a photo, mm -hmm. there's three people's hair represented. So, and these might be made over a series of years. Mm -hmm. So if, if our, if our elderly patriarch passes away, he might be the first strand. And then if his son or his brother, or his wife passes away, his hair would be moved in the wreath. And then usually the, the person who had most recently passed, their hair would be in a point of focus because we are in current mourning for that person. For them, yeah, sure. And then, you know, so it's like the tree kind of assimilates everybody's hair as you go. Mm. Um, this is really fascinating. And this comes up in uh, Wuthering Heights when Heathcliff uh, goes to the grave of his beloved Catherine he goes to steal a lock of hair that she's been buried with Linton, his, 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 uh, sort of romantic nemesis. Mm -hmm. And he steals the, the rival's hair from her grave and puts his hair in his, in, in her locket, mm -hmm. thinking that she's going to carry me with her for eternity. And I'm <laughs> going to be mourning this woman. And then Nellie, the nosy character sees this all go down. She's hiding and she comes out and she puts Linton's hair back in the locket. So both men, are now locked in the locket. Hiding in there <laughs> to the end of time. And it's just like, oh, so like, yeah, the, the, the love triangle is like christened in, in yeah, her forever. Grave. Yeah. So, so yeah, these locks of hair would be all joined together or incorporated in a way where, you know, roots are giving way to flowers, giving way to feathers. And it was a continuous project. And yeah. it's really pretty incredible to think yeah. about the level of care that goes into this. And to your point before, about identifying a lot of times this frame like the one we're seeing with the multiple pictures mm -hmm. has a key and the key tells you oh flower number 12 is Susie flower number 14 is Johnny oh amazing so there was a lot of detail given you know to make sure that you got the hair right and that you knew who it was and a lot of times these museum objects come with a key, you know, maybe like rolled up in the back of the frame yeah. or somewhere behind it. Brilliant. Um, in the uh, in the 1850s, you saw a real heyday of the hair relic industry, like we were talking about, Sears mm -hmm. and Roebuck getting on board. Um, you talked about the great exhibition in London a few weeks ago, 1851. The Crystal Palace. Mm -hmm. I did briefly mention it. Yeah. Oh, yes. And that just like rang in my ear. Um, so the Crystal Palace was the brainchild of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. Prince Albert really leading the design. And there were 11 different displays of hair art at the Crystal Palace in 1851, which mm -hmm. just gives Alongside you- Alongside the toilet, as I previously mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. The throne, the hair, it's all related. Here's the thing, um, though. If it's the 1800s and to my left is like a bunch of hair and to my right is like a fucking toilet, I'm going to be like, excuse me, I know where I need to be. <laughs> <laughs> um, and in fact, there were some really notable hair art on display. And one was a life-size portrait of <clears throat> Queen Victoria made of hair. Okay. <clears throat> now, now you just got me back. To the hair side. I'm leaving the toilet to go look at that. <laughs> <laughs> I have not found the hair portrait picture. I Ugh. need to see it so badly. There was a prize given. Oh, my God. Um, and there were several different depictions of Queen Victoria made, made of hair, just all hair. Now, this is when it gets a little a little kookier, you know, I mean, a little crazier. So, you know, it, the I mean, hair that art was kooky in and of itself. That was, that was kooky. So hair art becomes, you know, a home craft for women. It's like a fancy work like embroidery, something they might do. Um, and Queen Victoria also fetishized hair. So mm -hmm. when Prince Albert died in the 1860s, a few years later, um, she carried a lock of Prince Albert's hair with her at all times for 40 years years yeah and she slept with it in her bed yeah i mean that and, was a great love you know we oh, talked about that a little bit with nikki and alex and the it was their their it love was. was woof yes 
the intense. sexy sexy Koborgota, uh, <laughs> German German cousin love was mm -hmm. intense. It was a real love match. So and many babies. <laughs> so many babies. You know, they all get married to the crown heads of Europe. Mm -hmm. um, and then Queen Victoria also just has a bunch of you know. So she remains in mourning. You know, she, most women of her status might have remained in mourning for three or four years. Sure. She's in it for forty years. She refuses to leave. She stays in her widow's weeds. Um, and she also did some really interesting things that I had not heard of until I delved a little deeper. I didn't know that she kept his personal shaving area and his shaving jug replenished with hot water every day. Oh. As if he were still with her. And um, a famous Ooh. sculptor had a death mask made of Albert, which became a bust. And if you've seen mm -hmm. pictures of that bust, that bust was made from his death mask. And the bust- it's all coming back <laughs> around to <laughs> death mask. Dead, dead, dead. <laughs> hair, dead, hair, dead. Bodies, bodies, cholera. <laughs> so, so- Marrying your cousin. <laughs> and the bust was always, she was always, she was always photographed with the bust. Like the bust was behind her and next to her. It was like next to her bed, traveled with this bust as if it was him, you know? They and really could have used uh, therapy and counseling yes, maybe? Yes, yes. I think of that line from uh, Auntie, Ma Auntie Mame. Oh, I dated a sculptor, but oh, what did to my bust? What did he to my bust? <laughs> yes. And this also reminded me, I don't know if you remember, if you got really into the Scientology stuff a couple years ago. Did um, I get into Scientology? <laughs> But you know, like the documentaries, right? Yes, so, yes, I saw so the um, no, we used clear. to talk about it all the time. I was clear, damn it. Yes, I was clear. They told me I was clear, and then I was tossed off the boat. <laughs> exactly, her. Yeah, so I love her. And then, so if you remember that they kept L. Ron Hubbard's like cigarettes and slippers in all of their temples yeah, across the I world. I do remember that. <laughs> it's a very similar vibe. Like a he's weird just, Victorian practice. He's coming back. I mean, this is more like, you know, he's coming back because Xenu is sending him back or whatever, but. Um, yeah, with her, it's probably less he's coming back and more like, I can't stand that he's not the here. Absence. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, exactly. that painful, painful, palpable absence. I mean, she really did go all in on the morning. She yeah. did. Or women were the mourners in society. And so there yeah. was no greater feminine lead in this play than Queen Victoria. You know, she was it. She was the queen widow of the world. And she led that mourning practice for decades, you know, yeah. followed her. So where were the men in all of this then? If, it, if this is like led by women and mm, they're mm. the ones, they're also the ones who mainly have to adhere to all of the rules and everything, right? I know there are also rules about when you can remarry or, yes. or even consider courtship again. Exactly. Um, and I feel like it would be easier as a man to get away with certain things, but as a woman, there's just no way. Yeah. Women bore the brunt of it. So men were exempt from many of the strict rules. You motherfuckers. <laughs> Privileged as hell. So surrounding morning so women were discouraged from re-entering society discouraged from courtship like you were saying and just and had the strict dress codes men you know had to work in many cases and were not given any pass out of work no morning time really mm -hmm. given they might wear a black armband like literally like darker Which colors honestly, that sucks i mean it does you should have time <laughs> to mourn yes. a lot <laughs> Yes. So it's a very gendered thing and it's a very um, sort of uh, uh, gender biased thing yeah. in, in a sense. And I also think it's probably something like, you know, a societal assumption that women are more emotional and so they're prone or they're, you know, sort of entitled to express grief, whereas men are the stiff upper lip and are sort of always chronically fine um and have to just get on with it as it were mm -hmm. and do the work of the world and the women can just put everything on yeah what man could ever get away with doing what queen victoria did they think he was soft they would they right? would they would cast him out most yeah. likely yeah he'd be a pariah he'd be an other he'd be he'd be touched he'd be different mm -hmm. he would be ostracized um yeah so it's really it's really stark um in that and mm -hmm. i think also there's a sort of a sort of oppression women feel in this morning as much as they reveled in it and possibly not i want to say delighted but they engaged in the process with some mm -hmm. willingness and some energy and i think many women also were felt imprisoned by it and so there's also a I feminist bet. counter movement that goes you know what i keep this. thinking about 
mm-hmm. is um, a great example of this is in Gone with the Wind. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. When her first husband, the young guy, uh, he dies in the yes. Civil War and she's in mourning. But it's fake because she never loved him. Right. She married she married him to basically, you know, make the guy she actually loves jealous. Right. And so, you know, she's she's at a party that's supposed to be supporting the war effort and you see her like dancing alone behind the counter and trying to like be <laughs> cool about it and like that's when Rhett Butler like asks her to dance and everyone is like appalled. Shocking. That this widow is out dancing. And it's yeah. and it, she gets away with it because it's quote unquote for a good cause. Cause he essentially <laughs> I think he like um yeah he like bid on a dance with her. Yes. And that's why they oh get away with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's like Gable. the perfect example of that. You're so <laughs> right. You're so yeah. right. And the Civil War in America is the big is the big trauma of the age. Oh yeah. You know, in which the mourning was was so prevalent. Um, that's really a great, a great homage and illusion. Yeah. Um, so I want to sort of get to our get to our last chapter with some more interesting hair oddities that Ooh, I really want to share. I love a hair oddity now, it turns so out. We are at some point we're gonna delve into our dear friend Jeremy Bentham, the famous philosopher who wait. was who was immortalized in the auto icon. And when Jeremy Bentham died in 1832, he he had 27 hair rings made as part of his elaborate final wishes. <laughs> and there's a great picture I, I sent you. And it's a, uh, it's a silhouette of Jeremy. So it's a black silhouette, which is very 19th century, like a shadow portrait. Yes. And then a, a little strand of his hair off the back. And that's a ring. That's this a guy. Ring. So extra. <laughs> so extra. He gave one to the Marquis de Lafayette. My favorite is have you seen this picture of a bird unbelievable okay this yeah. is gonna blow your brain so <laughs> this I'm my ready. friend this my friend is known as the hairy eagle <laughs> as the name implies it is not a bald eagle and it's also not an eagle but it's an eagle made of hair <laughs> it's incredible no this is, is actually incredible. like art this is, it this is, is unbelievable circa 1864 in the midst of the American Civil War, the U.S. Sanitary Commission, a women's group, commissioned this unique piece of hair art or this hair wreath. And this was a common practice where hair art was also made from the living in many cases, just like sure. death, death masks and life masks. So this was a piece of hair art made from the living, and it was made to raise money for uh, soldiers and sailors and their and their sort of care. Mm-hmm. And so people could pay a dollar to see this <laughs> hair wreath. Get this. Who is composed? Who is in this wreath? So in this gigantic bird, there are there is the hair of Abraham Lincoln. Shut the front door. There no. is the hair of Vice President Hannibal Hamlin. Is the neck of the bird. <gasps> the the sort of eagle's head is Abraham Lincoln's hair. Beak is Attorney General Edward Bates. The back of the eagle is Secretary of State William Seward's hair. <laughs> A total of twenty three senators. Shut up. Donate follicles to create this All right, piece. I actually like it less now. <laughs> <laughs> it's creepy. So no, it's, it's gotten just, really weird. Now. It's just weird looking. Yeah. And so also their wives donated their hair. Why? And so, so it came with this beautiful printed key of all the different hair, which right, of course yeah. it did. So that gives a sense of authenticity, you know, to the provenance of it. And this is in the courtesy of the Onondaga uh, Historical Society's museum who have the unfortunate ownership of this. <laughs> okay, and, and where is this abomination? <laughs> this is in Syracuse, New York, New York state. Oh, it's local. <laughs> it's yes. Relatively close. So yeah, the Eagle sits on top of a globe, like an actual globe made of the hair of the wives. Of, no, including, <laughs> including our, including our friend, Mary Todd Lincoln, who's in there. Um, and of course, Wait, every so single no follow- part of this isn't hair. It's all hair. 
That's insanity. Yeah, the I beak. can't wait for you guys to look at this thing because this thing is so creepy. So it's very American. It's a eagle astride a globe with some like floral pieces beneath it. Um, and so <laughs> it needs like a cigarette hanging out of its mouth, a beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and so we were talking about the portrait of Queen Victoria, and that mm-hmm. seemed very that seemed very strange to us. But now we're seeing an eagle made of hair. So now we're getting really interesting. It's not just a flower. It's not just a feather. Now it's like a thing, a bird, a an animal so one can only imagine what a human portrait would possibly it, it it cannot be good it cannot be aesthetically <laughs> pleasing especially when it's like 175 years old so yeah. and lincoln's hair y'all continues lincoln's body okay so, so this is every episode is in this episode <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of what i like about it so um so lincoln's hair has been a huge draw for I'll you know the relic, the relic hunters of the world um and in 1905 president theodore roosevelt wore a ring containing Abraham Lincoln's hair <gasps> at his second inauguration in Washington. Daddy. So you'll see there's a picture of a small ring with yes, a little I curly cue. That's the ring. That's and it, it was it was given to him by Secret- Lincoln's former secretary, John Hay, who mm. was a very young man when he worked for Lincoln. So, mm-hmm. um, But he gave the ring to Teddy. So I just, I thought that was so interesting. Like Theodore Roosevelt, you know, who again saw Lincoln's body pass him in New York. When he I was know. I have this like ring of power president of the United States was wearing a ring with a dead president's hair in it. Like there's something about the civic whose secular... funeral he sort of attended yes. as a child. Yeah, yes. no, it's crazy. So the civic religious American relic, you know, of the yeah. dead saint of Lincoln, you know, is, 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 is prized. And apparently in, in the last five or 10 years, uh, a, a little piece of Lincoln's hair fetched $81,000 at an auction. Christ almighty. Yeah. Yeah. For real? For real. So, you know, like death masks, the photograph would supplant the hair relics of of of, of the time. Mm. You know, you could carry a, a picture of a loved one in, in your pocket or your wallet or a lot or or your phone, um, and as opposed to carrying a piece of their hair. And what also happens is that death retreats from the fabric of our lives. We're no longer recording last words because often we're not there with loved ones when they pass away. You know, they're in a care facility. There's not this vigil going on. You know, we're sort of we're removed from the equation of death to our satisfaction. We, we do not want to be a part of it as much as people did then out of yeah. necessity. And no one dies at home anymore. You know, so people are, really. born, people are born in a delivery room and they end up, you know, in a morgue. And so there's a disappearing of, of death. And with that, the loved one is sort of erased from our lives, not from our minds, but from the physical aspect of our lives. Mm-hmm. They remain photos. They remain in oral traditions or histories or videos. Right. Think, of a, think of a cherished video of a loved one, you know, and how important that is. And there's some scholars who say that with that, the art of storytelling itself is imperiled in our society because mm. the talisman of a hair relic or a lock of hair or something of a, of, of, of a death relic would be a, a catalyst of a story. You know, think about a young person talking to an older man, you know, and it's like, what's that you're carrying there, Grandpa? It's like, oh, this is a lock of hair. Of, yeah. This is Susie's hair. Let me tell you about Susie. So we're, we're telling stories today in our own way, but there's something to be said about our relationship with death because the idea is that death is the force that gives us meaning and where do we draw meaning from stories? Right. So it's really fascinating to think that we get there from hair. Well, I think, I think the hair and the death mask thing is very similar because it's Mm -hmm. also, you know, yeah, of course I can look at a photo, I can watch a video, but I can't feel that, Mm -hmm. you know, to be able to like feel what some, the fate, the shape of someone's face Yes. You know, to feel what it would have felt like to touch their cheekbones, to touch their lips, their nose, to be able to feel someone's hair in your hand. And especially if that's someone you love and you think about how many times you ran your fingers through that hair on this person that you love, that 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 is intimacy. That is something that a photograph can't possibly capture, you know, so it's, it's 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 a very powerful artifact 
in that in that way too i think the dead remained with the victorians in terms of these relics you know emotionally and physically and yeah. we mourn differently today you know we do we have different language for it we have different meaning attached to it but no 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 less is death universal in our lives yeah. today you know and so it's just a different you know there's always this temptation history to say one thing is better or different or worse than the other they're physically different you know there was a historian who said the past, the past is a different country and that's kind of <laughs> sometimes how you have to think of it you know it's not it's not better necessarily or worse yeah you know, more conveniences today but we probably carry different kinds of stress today and we you know have different kinds of poisons that we put into our minds and our bodies well i think also i feel like it's we're not granted this much grace in mourning no. as you were back then. No. Like there's expectation to move move forward and move on. When you think about if you have a job and you're given time for bereavement, how long is that? Depending on the job, days? Yeah. Yes. Has anybody ever gotten over the loss of someone they really love in days? No. 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 Takes a long time. Yeah. And in the pandemic, I feel as if there's sort of a re-loose a re-loosening of those threads of slowing mm -hmm. down, taking time to reflect. But also in the in the pandemic, people were ripped away from each other very dramatically. Yeah. And and the, and they said goodbye from a distance, a much greater distance than they ever would have before the pandemic. So yeah. it's it's all very relative in that regard. I would be in remiss if I didn't talk a little bit about where one can engage with the materiality of hair in terms of mourning culture. Where can you see this stuff? Yes, um, please. So the Mütter Museum in Philadelphia had a long-standing exhibit called Woven Strands. I think it may still be around either virtually or in person. And they have a lot of different hair art on display. In fact, that image of the 12 12 portraits surrounding that one wreath is from the Mütter Museum. The New York Public Library has locks of Walt Whitman's hair, Mary Shelley's hair, um, and then begins a list of several museums that I have never been to but are far flung. And they're all in a certain part of the country. Um, Tony Kendall's Wild Hair Museum. Oh, no. <laughs> in French Lick, Indiana. <laughs> French Lick. <laughs> Cow Lick. The Confederate Relic Museum oh, no. mm -hmm. in Columbia, South Carolina. Bye-bye. <laughs> and the one I really want to go to, Layla's Hair Museum in, oh, Indo hey girl. in Independence, Missouri. <laughs> Come on down. So let me tell you a little bit about Layla's Hair Museum. She has several pieces about her she has she has several pieces of queen victoria's hair she has four presidents she has celebrities hair from michael jackson Marilyn monroe um she apparently has mother mary's hair and jesus hair yeah i do too <laughs> mm -hmm. and their dog so, i love the dog's hair yes yes. <laughs> yes this is our dog barabbas uh so <laughs> Um, so she also has what's cool about her museum is I've seen pictures. She has over 600 hair wreaths on display. Who is this lady? She is some kind of hair authority. She apparently is. <laughs> she apparently is writing a book about hair wreaths, which I'm very excited <gasps> okay. about. Yeah. Come on, Miss Layla. Layla. Um, so I'm not sure exactly where, you know, if she had wealth or how she collected these yeah. things. Um, you know, and of course, like I mentioned before, the Mark Twain House and Museum has one, but a, a lot of Victoria. Victorian house museums, if they're depicting something from 1860 to 1890 to early 1900s, the likelihood of them having one on display in the historic house or having one in their collection, maybe that is, you know, just in storage, is very high. Yeah. Um, so think about that I imagine that next in time. England, too. There's oh, got to be a lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't have a comprehensive list of, like, all the heritage facilities in, in uh, yeah, the UK. Yeah, but, I'd, but I'd assume. They are far and wide, for yeah. sure. So that concludes the hair wreath and hair art retrospective of Victorian morning. Amazing, Luke. <laughs> it, it's made me think about, I don't, I don't know how, how much you know about this, but you know, we were laughing and joking about Etsy, but there is a whole world that exists of these artists who yes. do this kind of stuff. I mean, I don't know if anybody's doing this elaborate hair wreath, but they, I they saw will some... make jewelry Yes, with your I saw some. Ones. I saw some leaves, some hair leaves yeah. that people are currently making, and they're stunning. Yeah. Um, so, and the same thing with how when we did the death maths episodes, how there is still this this little niche part of the population who still finds this to be valuable yes. and wants to continue that tradition. So, 
I think if it's something that you want, you could probably find it on Etsy. You could probably find somebody to do it. I know that when my dog passed away a few years ago, I was looking into a way to preserve his ashes in a piece of jewelry because mm. you can do mm -hmm. that. Generally speaking, uh, they won't do that with people because you cannot send remains through the mail <laughs> right. of a human being. So, um, But I don't think hair counts. So I would imagine yeah. that that's like something you could figure out. I don't know. It's worth looking into. But I mean, these these are beautiful practices in, in, they are. in their own way. You know? They are. And, and also in our kind of sci-fi world we're living in now, this is DNA. It is. You know? Like yeah. it's, a, it's a window into their genome. So um, what a great topic. So obviously perfect for this podcast. Your so timing fun. is your timing is phenomenal based on every <laughs> other episode we've ever done. Thank you to our listeners. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Morbid Museum podcast. Uh, please remember to rate and subscribe to the Morbid Museum wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Instagram at the Morbid Museum for more morbid content and our more buddy family is growing. Yay. Please share us with your friends and family worldwide. We'd love to get more listeners. So thank you, you so much. You want some of our hair? We'll send you some of our hair. You can have my hair. <laughs> sell it to you <laughs> thank you very much and we will see you next time katie's going to take us on a wild ride next week for another oh, yeah. gallery talk inside the morbid museum podcast bye-bye bye, -bye. bye.